Here we go. My name's Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 595. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. Now, always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, it's going to be a little bit different. Kathy and I are going to talk for about if our more if our if our voices sound different because we're doing morning voice. Um, but we are going to play a significant clip, probably about forty minutes of a Zen talk. Is that really a clip, or is it just the whole thing? It's forty minutes of the sixty minutes. Yes. Um, we inter- we didn't interview. We had a conversation through our Team Zen platform. We do these Zen talks twice a month, and sometimes it's just Kathy and I supporting and answering questions of people that are on the team, and other times we have experts come in and talk to our teammates. And last week we had Mercedes Samudio, and she is a does a lot of things, but she's a parent coach, she's an author, she is an EMDR teacher, I don't know what you call it, EMDR. Um, clinician. Clinician. Because mm-hmm. she's an LCSW. Mm-hmm. And um, we have done a lot of these, but we were so kind of impacted, at least I was, of the the information that Mercedes conveyed to our audience, we asked if Mercedes would be okay with us sharing it on the podcast, and she said yes. So that's what you're going to catch uh, on probably the last 40 minutes. And I do want to say that um, we compressed it. We're cutting a little bit of it out just in terms of time. So Mercedes is going to talk to us a lot about what EMDR therapy is. Do you want to give like an overview of it? Do you want to give an overview of it? Um, sure. I mean, I I will. We you know we go pretty deep into it um, in the in the podcast itself. In that it's you know what we would call it is this is a Zen talk that we're sharing with you. That yes. usually we only do these Zen talks with our, with Team Zen, but this time we are sharing the Zen talk with you. Um, EMDR so stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. That's EMDR, and I know that's a mouthful, um, but basically it's it's funny during the Zen talk. Um, Mercedes described it as being somewhat like magic. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't agree more that... How would you know, sweetie? Have you ever done EMDR? <laughs> I have. I've been um, receiving EMDR. I am not a clinician or a... Um, how do I want to say this? I am not trained mm-hmm. in offering EMDR, but my own therapist has used it with me. And it was originally used for... Um, even though it's been used with a multitude of people now, when I read about it years ago, it was used a lot with people who had significant PTSD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think about someone coming home from war, th- think about somebody who had been significantly traumatized in their childhood, and it's still used for that, for those issues, but it's also used for maybe more, um, I don't like to say, I don't, I don't know how to say this, like common traumas. We actually go deep in the Zen talk about what trauma really means Mm -hmm. because trauma doesn't, it's not, we're not in competition with each other about how much we got hurt. It's not like there's either trauma or there's not trauma. There's nuanced differences on impactful or levels of trauma. Exactly. And it's how you processed something. Yeah that defines whether or not, like it can be something where an example that I was just reading a book about this and an example that was given is four people can watch a car accident. Okay. And a, you know, pretty bad car accident. One person can walk away and be like, wow, you know, that was, wow, that was huge. But then the next day, not think about it. And then another person can walk away and be significantly impacted and carry it for years. And it's different depending on who you are, what your history is, um, and what you saw and what you believed that to be for mm-hmm. you. So you can In other understand. Words, we view it through our lens. Exactly. Which is, my lens is different than your lens. Correct. And so that's why when someone experiences a trauma, you may look at their experience and say, well, that wouldn't bother me, but that doesn't matter. If they process the event a certain way, it will get kind of shored up in their brain mm-hmm. as a traumatic experience, and that has to be, through EMDR, reprocessed or, and looked at. Or maybe embedded into their body. It, yes, right? it's all kind of, as we know, mind-body connection, it's both. Um, and then the other last thing I'll say before we do a few kind of announcements or fun things, we're going to talk about something fun here in a second. Um, the first part that is not in this interview that Mercedes uh, shared with us is that she um, is an advocate of shame-proof parenting. As a matter of fact, that's what her website is called, shameproofparenting.com. 
com. So I just invite everybody to go to that link because she is a coach. She is a EMDR clinician. She's an author. She does a lot of things. Um, and she runs diversity in parenting. Too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she is just a multi-talented woman and she is pretty amazing. So we're big fans of her. And her work. And her work. Um, but first, um, I'm going to play a quick song here and Sweetie's going to explain why I'm playing it. You want to sing this? You know what? I don't, but I could. You don't know the words. Oh my gosh, I know every word. Why am I playing this theme song? Because these are my girls. <laughs> I know. And these girls are who? These are the Golden Girls. The TV show The Golden Girls with Betty White and three other ladies that I don't know. You can't just do that. E. Arthur, Estelle Getty, that's all I got. And Rue. Rue McClellan. Yeah, I think it's McClenahan. McClenahan, sorry. Mm-hmm. So this show's been on since 1980-whatever. Why are we bringing this 30, up? Like 36 years ago, this okay. show came out. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know. For the past month or so, um, my daughter and I, my youngest daughter and I, have been watching The Golden Girls. Um, and it kind of started without us knowing it started, which was when we were um, on a trip you know how you don't you don't have your TV, right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't have all of our Roku and all of that stuff. And so we had to like scroll through what was available. And the Hallmark Channel happened to have like a Golden Girls marathon. And I kind of was like, oh, this show, I used to love this show. And we watched one. And then I think like that night we were like, oh, Golden Girls again and watched it again. And we got home. We were like, let's start from the very beginning. Because let me explain why. Okay, we watch a lot of shows, you know, over and over again, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, all these shows. And and they're great and they're funny and they, they're very soothing. But it's really hard to find it's, – it's more difficult to find shows that are gentle and positive mm-hmm. and end warmly and have this comfort to them. And there's something about Golden Girls – and it could be for me, like you'd have to talk to my daughter about why she likes it um, – but for me, it's very comforting. Mm-hmm. Like it reminds me of 36 years ago mm-hmm. um, when I was younger, but it also is like the simplest parts of life mm. um, without all the chaos yeah. that we've experienced. But one thing that has been interesting as far as having a little humility here is that I think I had assumptions about how golden these golden girls were. And uh, they're they're my age. <laughs> so when Kathy's like, you know, they are. I'm like, well, they're grandmas, so right. they must be in their seventies or eighties. So let's just go through all four of them just mm-hmm. to give you an idea. So you know, with some little trivia in here. So let's start with Sophia Petrillo, who is actually um, um, Estelle Getty, and we didn't mention her um, before. Did you mention her before? Yes. Oh, you did. Okay, so Estelle Getty, interestingly enough. She played the oldest golden girl, the grandmother, Dorothy's mother. Um, but she was actually the youngest. Mm-hmm. She was, well, close to the youngest. She was um, 62 okay. when she made this show. And she was supposed to be 79 okay. in the show. So they would just put a lot of makeup on her and yeah. the wig and yeah. she'd carry around her purse. And Sophia's funny because she, what, her backstory is that she had a stroke mm-hmm. and worked her way back, like just like my dad did, you know, mm-hmm. learned how to speak again, learned how to walk again. But then she lost that filter of like, don't say that. Yeah. So Sophia says everything she wants to say. Oh, I had say. no idea. Yeah, that's why she talked. That's why they're always like. I thought she was just some old lady that spoke her mind. No, she kind of, in her stroke, she lost that filter. Okay. So that gives her full permission to say yeah. all the things she says. Okay. So, but let's go to Rose, who is Betty White, who, by the way, right now is 99 years old. She's A young 99. She's the only golden girl that is still with us. So she was 63 when this series began, but on the show, she's 55. <laughs> Yeah, and okay. we are coming up on 50 here I'm soon. 49. I'm like, how am I five peers? years younger than Rose than Rose from Golden Girls? Correct. And then we have Dorothy Spornak, who is B. Arthur. She was 63 when the series began, but in the show, it's she's in her early 50s. That's nuts. I know. 
So I think what, well, the reason I'm bringing this up, I mean, we can do a whole episode on Golden Girls, which we're not about to do. Oh, we could. I know we could. Um, is we are just much older than I thought. Okay, so can I just give you the last one? Sure. Blanche Devereaux, who's my favorite. I love Blanche, and that's Rue McClanahan. She was 52 when the series began, and that's the only golden girl who has the real-life age on the show. So Rue McClanahan is 52, that's and nuts. on the show she's 52. I am 49. So these women, they've either been widowed, or Dorothy is divorced, and Sophia is obviously And they're living in Miami. And they're living in Miami. They're so retired. They're doing retired stuff. Even though they're not retired. All of them work. And well, the Sophia one that volunteers. I saw, they made, a, uh, they made a restaurant on the beach. <laughs> I know. These are very active women. So in a way, even though we're talking about this, like, oh my God, they're my peers. I am honored to be in, you know, I would love to have the energy that these women have. The episode I watched last night, they went to the Caribbean and they were shipwrecked and they like figured out how to get home. A lot of shenanigans over there. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so anyway, let's move on. Um, Wait, we're not going to like close this up. No. The, uh, do you go ahead. You can find Golden Girls on Hulu. So if you want a good... <laughs> low-key show amidst all the other crazy shows we watch. And when I say crazy, like intense. Yeah, less anxiety-provoking. Correct. Because I watch, I still watch some intense things, but this is just calms everything down. Um, so my sweetheart does these Zen moments. She, write the, she writes these blogs twice a week. Um, and the one that we want to focus on today is the letter to fear. Yeah. Um, and you have the sound of silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. What inspired you to write this one, sweetie? Well, I don't know. I think it was a couple of years ago um, on Liz Gilbert's, Elizabeth Gilbert's Facebook page. She's an author. You guys probably know. Um, she had written a, you know, just kind of an overview of why she writes letters to her own fear. Mm -hmm. And I had kept that Facebook. I had like printed out that Facebook post and kept it because I've done that a few times. She inspired me to do that. And what she explained was that when you are feeling really afraid and it just feels like an ongoing anxiety, it's an opportunity to stop and to use. And again, I always um, recommend using a pen or a pencil and writing with your own hand mm -hmm. and not just mm -hmm. typing on a computer because that's so worky. But asking fear what it's worried about. Mm -hmm. Why is it so scared? Now, the interesting thing is, not only does that give a part of you a voice that maybe doesn't always have a voice, so it gets an opportunity to share something that maybe you've been pushing away, but you will also find that fear is not, as she says, bottomless, that really it's only worried about a couple of things, things like, will we be okay? Mm -hmm. Do I belong? Um, will I be loved? You know, things in that area. You know, it may sound different coming from you, like the language, but it really just tends to focus and be afraid of the same stuff. Mm. And the more you give it voice, the more you can acknowledge it and also talk back to it in not in a negative way, but in a soothing, compassionate way. And so, you know, she recommends write a letter to fear and let fear write a letter back to you. The way I do it is more like the Neil Donald Walsh conversations to God style where I write a question and then have fear answer it mm. right away. Um, so it's just kind of all in one. But it was just a recommendation to do that. You said, I asked fear what it needed from me and how I could soothe its concerns. It asked if we would be okay, if we would survive the pain of uncertainty and discomfort. I told it, yes. I told it we would survive all of it. I explained that we are hardwired to handle the heartbreak, the vulnerability, the disappointment, the deep pain, and we would not only survive it, we would use it. Those are wonderful words. Thank you. Um, and the last thing before we press play on this interview with Mercedes is what I like most about this is usually when we are afraid, we it's uncomfortable. So when we are in discomfort, we resist it. And what this does is it gives it a friendly, an opportunity for it to be a little more friendly. Well, just remember that your fear is a part of you mm -hmm. and it is trying to support you and it is trying to keep you safe. Now, that doesn't mean it's always right and that doesn't mean it's always telling you the truth, but it it's a coping tool or it's more than a coping tool. It's a survival tool and sometimes because of the way we live now, it gets afraid of things that it doesn't need to be afraid of, yeah. or it's afraid of things and it um, exaggerates. Like I actually have on my meditation board upstairs, all it says is fear exaggerates. And basically what that does is it does a, 
here's what it's afraid of. And then it's like, what if, what if, what if? And it takes you up this ladder of what if all these things happen? Yeah. Um, I actually just wrote something down before I came down here is that there's a lot of things that I tend to be afraid of that come up in the morning or middle of the night or before I go to bed or midday. Um, but um, it usually, I, I wrote, watch yourself because anything can be true, but it's rarely what your brain creates. Mm. So, so in other words, you're saying be cautious of the filter that you are. Correct. Like there's some things that I'm worried about right now that I've created and it's like, there's other things that might be true that that I should be afraid of, mm -hmm. but the things I'm creating in my brain are probably not the things. Yeah. And, you know, going back to connecting Mercedes to this, because you're about to listen to her, this is our brains get hardwired around our own traumas and challenges, right? And so sometimes the way I view something, my fear goes in a certain direction because of my history and because of the pain that I have historically experienced. And so it doesn't, so, you know, in the last month or two, I've been very surprised by certain things and they were things I, I was never even, I never even knew to be afraid of because I had never experienced them before. Does that make sense? It's like sometimes the things we create in our brain are not the things we need to be concerned about. Yes, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's just a discernment that is hard to do because when you're in it, you're not thinking about discerning the information in a certain way. You're just receiving it as is. So it takes some self-awareness right. to interpret it. And remember, fear is not just a thought process, it's the body. Mm -hmm. So your body is having, um, for those of you, we talk about this in the Zen talk, but uh, the body keeps score book. Um, body keeps the score. Body keeps the score. It talks about how much of this trauma lives in our body. So when I get afraid, I'm not just thinking fearful thoughts. My stomach clenches up. I have an experience in my chest. And so my body has a reaction like it's already happening. Mm -hmm. So it can be, be very hard to differentiate between what's real and what's not. And, um, you know, there's this thing I have in my office, um, and it's this really cute drawing by uh, Buddha Doodles. I don't know if you guys follow that on Twitter or anywhere, but on Instagram. And she has this one where it's this guy and there are these two little monsters and they're just standing in front of him and it just says, befriend your monsters. Mm. And it's, you know, they're cute little monsters. And I love it because sometimes, and I'm putting this in air quote, our monsters are just some things that our fear has created. And if we can talk to them, they're really just trying to help us. Yep. And we can tame them or explain to them that they don't need to be so highly um, anxious. Yes. Um, easier said than done. It's a practice. It's not about a one-time shot. Like, as I said, I've written a lot of letters to fear. Yes. And you're probably going to write more. Yes. Um, so without further ado, here is Mercedes Samudio. And just so you guys know, we are starting kind of in the middle. We're skipping over where she teaches us about shame-proof parenting and we're going right into the EMDR. So I just want to just uh, share and be transparent that that's the, I mean, it's all very good information, but we just, it's going to start in the middle. That's why. Okay. So, all right. Hope you guys enjoy the interview. We'll see you next week. I mean, every, you know, everybody on Team Zen, or at least the the vast majority, you know, have kids who are older and we're way past that. It's just, that's an interesting you know, that's an interesting career. But will you explain, switching gears, will you talk about EMDR and explain to everybody on Team Zen what that is yes. and why you got into it? Why and how? So the why is because I have a trauma. Yeah. So that's why I jumped into this profession. It's very obvious. Um, but the reason why I decided to finally get trained in it is because during the pandemic, I actually realized how much my trauma still had not been resolved. Even as a therapist, even doing this work, the pandemic really knocked me on my behind. And I was just sitting there like, I thought I had resolved some of this. I thought I had gotten to a better space with a lot of it. And what I found was that I felt like I did when I was a kid, being kind of on lockdown and not having any control over it. It felt just like I did when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And that's what brought all of that up because that's how I felt as a kid. I felt like I was trapped and there was nothing I could do about it because I was a child and the parents and the adults had all of the power. Well, it felt that way a lot where it's like the politicians who I didn't always feel safe with and all these people had all the power and I had to stay in the house. And so it was very similar. And so I started the process of training because what I had learned in my trauma survival was if you learn something, then you'll heal. Mm. 
right? And so I thought, okay, I'll learn EMDR and in the process of learning it, I'll do it, I'll be doing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I had to learn halfway through that I actually need to experience it myself. Mm -hmm. And I am a huge proponent of EMDR. It literally changed my life. It felt, I'm a very like nerdy person. So I'm like Hufflepuff, Hogwarts, magic, and it's magic. Yeah. That's how I feel like like when Harry Potter is like, expecto Patronum and like his Patronus comes out and saves him and gets all those negative, nasty Dementors away. That's how EMDR feels for me where it's like, I'm like expecto Patronum, all of those negative, nasty Dementors go away. Right. And so it's such an enlightening space. And so I say that before I talk about it, because that personal space is why I went with it and kept going and got trained in it and now do it in my work. And so EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And the gist of it is that when you get traumatized, it stores the memory somewhere in your brain, right? I won't get into all the technical of it, but it stores that there. Then you also develop a narrative to protect you from that happening again. Mm. What ends up happening over time is that events keep happening that confirm that you need to keep that You need to keep, you can't let that go until it becomes this kind of chicken or the egg thing where it's like, I don't remember if this is who I am or if this is the trauma. Mm. I don't remember if I was always like this or it was this, right? And that's what keeps people stuck in their patterns. So EMDR says, let's go back to the earliest time that you can remember this feeling, Mm. right? Mm. For me, it was anger. Like, when did you remember anger, right? Because that was what I was coming for. I realized how much anger I was still holding on to. And when you get to whatever memory you can access, that's the one you start with. It doesn't mean there may have been an earlier one. It just means that that's the first one you can access consciously. You can say, I remember when I was 10 and And that was the first time I acknowledged that sadness was a thing or anger was a thing or blah, blah, blah was a thing. So we'll start with 10. We'll work through that through a series of the protocols that EMDR uses to help you to not just go back to it, but also help you to reprocess it, not as a 10-year-old, but in your current understanding of your strengths, your ideology, your cognitions about yourself. And I also love that EMDR builds coping skills for you. So even before you start diving into those really deep, intense memories, we have a set of coping skills is what I'll call them. They're called resourcing in the terminology, but coping skills to help you actually sustain going back into those memories, because there's a reason why you can't access them. There's a reason why you store them so far away from your consciousness, because you can't deal with it. And so in EMDR, we go to that spot, but we go kind of armored up. You're not just going you know, when all the shrapnel can hit you, you're going with some armor, you got a little shield, got a little sword, you're like, all right. What's good about that is that you now have more control over when you want to put the armor on and when you want to take it off, Mm -hmm. when you want to address that and when you'd like to close that back up. EMDR gives you all of the tools to make conscious decisions about how you want to engage with that memory or with that emotion. And so it gives you back the power that was probably taken from you when that traumatic event happened. So where I am right now is I've never done EMDR. My sweetheart does it a lot. And um, I know what little I know about is from what Kathy's told me. So either Mercedes or Kathy, like, I, I want to know, like, how's it different than therapy? Like, why, mm-hmm. like, what happens in the session to differentiate it from talk therapy? Well, I'll, I'll just say this and then I'll defer to Mercedes because, again, I'm the experiencer, but she is the clinician who is offering it. So what I will say is that um, what I found interesting about it is that, and I love Mercedes' explanation is so, it's exactly just that what you said about you go into that space, but you're not going into it vulnerable and exposed like you were when you experienced it. You're going into it with a different set of, I mean, mine's a whole long story. Like, and I have a lot of the, the, the pieces that I go into it with in my meditation area, like they're around me all the time. Like I have a lot of people and, and in pictures that I have, but what I will say is that I love that you said it's magical because what I think is so interesting in the experience of EMDR is that something will come up and it makes no sense 
and a, a picture. Like I remember the first time I did it and this clown kept coming up and I didn't understand the clown and the clown wanted me to like go somewhere. It was, I was like, I don't understand. And every time you know, Marilyn is my, my therapist, she would stop and she'd say, just go with it, just go with it. And eventually I don't need to give you guys all the details, but it was like a perfect, it didn't make, it, it's not, the reason that I talked to Todd about it a lot is he's very logical and practical and I could picture him not allowing himself to go with it. Like, this is not going to look linear. This is not going to look like, oh, this is the perfect path to healing. Oh, and there's my trauma. Ooh, let me dismantle it. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's very, and, and again, it's probably different for everybody. Like you may have a different experience with it, Mercedes, but tell us about some feedback you've gotten from your clients or even your own experience. Like, did you have that too, where you were like, mm -hmm. what's, where am I going and how did I get here? But somehow I did. Yes. All of that. Exactly. Yeah. Well articulated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I say this as someone who also has his partner who is super logical. And so me explaining EMDR to him, he's just like, oh, all right. Good for you. you know, Because <laughs> it's, it, it, it's so, I'll say it this way. It really is magical because I'm not going into all the technical, like this is the actual part of your brain that it goes into. There's a lot of that. And, and so I won't do that because I think what is important about EMDR is that it really helps you to go into a space that you have been so scared to go into, but is still influencing so much of your life. Mm. And I think that's the hardest part about people who come to EMDR. I was, I had clients this morning that were kind of getting into the process of it. And she said to me, she said, I'm so smart and I don't know why this keeps happening. Mm. And I said, that's because the part of your brain that you store this doesn't have the same intellect that you have mm. now. All the work you've done to survive, that part of your brain doesn't have that. It's, it's you, here's the sad part, you pushed it away, but because it's away from you, it didn't develop with you. So it's over there, still five, still 10, still 11, still 12, whatever age it was, it's still that age. And if you have kids now, which most people do by the time they get to me, right, they'll say, well, my five-year-old throws a tantrum every time I don't put the peanut butter on the right side of the bread. I'm like, that's what your trauma does. It throws a tantrum every time someone doesn't put the peanut butter on the right side of the bread. You as an adult with cognition and logic are like, why, is I, why am I responding this way? That 10-year-old is like, well, you didn't put the peanut butter on the right side of the bread. I got to act a fool now. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like if that's, that's EMDR. It says we got to go talk to that person and help them mm. to come back to where you are now. Mm -hmm. help you to have empathy for that yeah. and not be so mad at it, not be so worried about it. And that's the experience that almost all my clients go through where they can say, now, when I think about that part of me, I don't think, Ugh, how dumb was I? I think, of course you went there where you can have that empathy for that person who made that decision in that time. You can have empathy for the narratives that you developed because of that. You can have empathy for whatever coping you developed as a result of it, because now you don't look at it as, I wish that part hadn't happened. You look at it as, that happened to me and I'm so sorry that happened. And now I can see that. I can have empathy for that piece of myself. And I think that to me is the magical part of it, um, of EMDR, where a lot of times our trauma convinces us that that part of us is so distant it's so different it's not you and you don't get a chance to nurture it and, mm. and empathize with it because your trauma says get that away from you that's not who you are but it is who you are it's right. a huge part of who you are and until you embrace that it's always going to be on the outskirts wreaking havoc on your life yeah mm. it's it's going to be it's going to be dri driving the bus and you know either yep. you own it or it owns you Yep. So I have, there's two different questions. One was written to me beforehand and one is in the chat box yeah. and they're similar, but different. So I want to take them one at a time. I'm going to start with uh, Kim who couldn't make it today, but she was excited that you were joining us. And she had a question. She's been very interested, interested in EMDR for her daughter who is 17 and is, has anxiety and depression that's currently being treated with meds. I have asked her psychiatrist about doing EMDR with her. And the response was, EMDR is used for trauma. My question is, does it need to be a big traumatic event or can you use it to uncover stuck places in your subconscious? What if a person has disassociated and really doesn't remember the trauma? To me, my daughter exhibits behaviors of someone with PTSD without a known traumatic event. I love that question because that question is exactly why EMDR was created. 
It was created for people who don't understand why they're responding this way because there's no trauma because our social consciousness around trauma is like you had to have been like dropped on your head as a baby or your family had to just neglect you or you had to have be severely abused and what we don't realize is that trauma is all about perception mm. everybody in this room is listening to me talk some people are hearing one thing other people are hearing another thing some people think i'm loud some people think i'm soft and all of that is perception that's what happens with trauma when I talk to people about this, I say, if right now a natural disaster happened, all of us would respond differently. It doesn't mean the natural disaster didn't happen. It just means we all have varying levels of knowing how to respond to things. Some people cower, some people jump into hero mode and everything in between, mm-hmm. right? That's what happens with trauma, especially in families. And, and it's something that before I even did EMDR, I talked to parents about a lot. Things that you can handle your kids always can't because they don't have the social structures in place to tell themselves it's not my fault. I didn't do this. I didn't create this. What happens with kids by the time they get to be adolescents, interestingly enough, is that they've been under this family system for 15, 16, 17, 18 years. That's enough trauma for some kids, depending on how they're being able to manage things and understand things. Um, I often tell parents, if you want to know if your kid is experiencing trauma in their own perceptive spaces, Ask them about innocuous things that have nothing to do with them and see how they respond, right? I always like to say, watch TV shows and things that are conflictual. If you're a teen, watch how your teenager responds to things that are conflictual. Do they think that people should never have conflict? Do they think that everyone should fight to the death, right? What are they into? What are they paying attention to? Because that's letting you know how they're processing the world, right? And that can create trauma too, because if I think Todd right now hates me, Everything he says is going to get filtered through that. Mm -hmm. Even if he's never told me that before, I just think Todd hates me. Mm -hmm. So he'll say, good morning. I'll be like, he'll say, how you doing? I'll be like, you're faking, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If you've been around teenagers before, they do that. You'll say, how are you? And they're like, Mm -hmm. and you have no idea, but that's because they're filtering everything you're saying through the narrative they've created that can be traumatic enough. And so to answer the question, EMDR does work even when you don't know, because many of us pick up traumas, not just because of an event, but because of also how we learn how to process things, right? And if every time I'm talking to someone, I think they hate me, that's a new trauma. Mm, It continues to to jump on it because I think you hate me. And a lot of teenagers do think their parents hate them. So it probably just exacerbates that. And so I often say, when you start EMDR, sometimes people can say, I know what memory it is. And sometimes they say, I just, I just don't know. And we can even start with just the coping, right? Just the resourcing stuff. And sometimes just in giving someone permission to rest their brain enough to enjoy the coping part, they say, oh, I remember my mom told me when I was three that I better learn how to do X, Y, and Z. And I never trusted her after that. And there we go. Now we've got a memory to start working with. It's super interesting how EMDR, because it targets the stuff you can't target, that when you give someone a space to be there, they're like, oh, yeah, wait, I remember this. And then we can start moving forward, if that makes sense. I feel like I would struggle. And part of me is just interested in trying just to see, because... I, in order for this to be successful, I make up a story that I would have to let go and drop mm. story and drop logic and drop, you know, the the Excel spreadsheets that I have living in my head of things making sense from point A to point B. And Kathy's always been much more open to seeing nonlinear things. Well, let me say two things uh, to go off of what Mercedes said. The first one is, is I love that question too, Mercedes, because there can be, if you grew up in an environment that was fairly typical, you know, that there wasn't any extreme trauma, you don't have any like big story, this, and this goes into your work too, there can be some shame about why do I need this? <laughs> like, I feel bad. Hi, Sky. Um, I feel bad that I am even getting this done because, you know, my parents, you know, it was a good upbringing and there's no like big story. But what you said is perfect is that, um, I don't like that word perfect. What you said is exactly how I feel, which is um, it's perception. Mm. And there was because of the way that I am or that the way I was when I was young, I just perceived things differently. I, everything felt a little harder. Um, emotions were stronger. I felt other people's 
shit all the time and I carried it. And so it's like, for those of us, that word trauma, it's almost like we need to talk about, you know, and I know Brene and, and other people do a really good job giving us a new definition of a word because trauma is not just that list of 10 things that people talk about. It's perception and that we can, and there's so many, like, you know, a lot of times people will be like, they went, they did EMDR and they worked through the the thing. But for me, it's, I never know what it's going to be. And it'll be, sometimes it's the same thing. And like you said, Mercedes, it's just super layered. It's like, it kind of got layered and layered and layered, or it's the same stuff, but in different pants, you know, it just looks different. Um, and so I, I want to say to anybody who feels like, well, I don't really have a, you know, my college students say this all the time. I don't really have a trauma. So I don't really feel like I should talk about this. And it's like, listen, Everybody has something if they want. I'm not saying everybody has to do it. I'm saying if you feel like it would be beneficial, there's no shame. You don't have to like have the worst story. You don't have to have the big story. You can go in and just see, um, you know, what it does. And and what I would say to you, Todd, um, is that. I, what I found is I used to do a lot of body work and Reiki and a lot of things like that. And what, and, and even though I appreciated that and enjoyed that, I always felt like it was the body worker who was then telling me what was coming up. And what I appreciate about EMDR is it cuts off that middle person mm-hmm. where I, I'm, the, the work is happening without me knowing it, but it's coming from me and I'm not getting yes. the filter of somebody else's experience. You know, I I used to always trust my body workers, but there was a sense of, but it's coming through them then and it's through their perception. And I really appreciate that when something, when I have images or something comes up, that's me working on me and I trust me. You know, like I trust that that is what needs to be worked on. So, all right, I have a really good question, but first I want to be respectful to Lisa who wrote her question. So I'm going to ask it, Lisa, but feel free to unmute yourself if you want to do follow up questions. She asks, How about for teens or 18 year olds helping positioning it to them when they don't necessarily yet see how a trauma is affecting them? And I think that's kind of where we were. I, I, I agree that these kind of questions are a little similar because I think. That's why MDR works. It works on that unconscious level. And it kind of works to answer your other question too. How is it different than talk therapy? Talk therapy works if you can access it, right? I was telling a client that the other day, the reason why talk therapy people like it is because if I can access my problems, then I can talk about it, right? But what about the stuff that I can't access anymore? What about the stuff that I know is there? I just don't know how to get back to it to even talk about it. Um, I told a a client this morning, I said, what you just shared with me is the closest you can get to it, isn't it? And she laughed and she said, yes, all I can tell you is that it happened. I, if you asked me what the feeling was or what the imagery was, I just know what happened. And what she said was really profound. She said, I think I also know what happens because people talk about it in my family as an event. So I know what happened, but I don't remember being there. And I was five, but I don't remember being there. And like all of this is what EMBR works with. Those things that we put away that are so unconscious, we don't even remember it until someone says, oh, you remember Disneyland? You're like, oh, I do remember Disneyland. That was a horrible day, right? Then you remember it. But on another, on just like an easy day where you're just trying to get through it, you can't access that stuff. And so to talk about this 18-year-old, by the time someone's 18, they've been in the world for 18 years and they create a whole narrative about the world and their place in it. That's traumatic enough, depending on what that is, even if on the surface, there's no event, there's no trauma, there's no precipitating, sometimes just existing in the world as a different person, as Kathy shared. And I was, as I was listening, I was like, that's me too. I've been, I feel emotions in my body. When people are happy, I feel happiness. When people are sad, I feel sad. Like, I I don't even know how to stop it. Right. And so when you're a kid who's like that, by the time you get 18 years old, you have had a lot of traumas because you've had everyone else's. It's almost like vicarious. And because of it, and this is going to be a really good thing to think about now too, in adolescence, you're developing your identity. That's just developmentally what you're doing. And so if you're taking on everybody else's stuff because you don't realize you're an empath or you don't realize you're doing it, that you start to internalize it as this is me. This is who I am. And then by the time you get 18, you think I'm just an over-emotional psychopath who should go in the corner and sit down because you feel everything. But everyone else is looking around like, what are, what are you experiencing? What are you feeling? And so for a lot of my young adults, right between 18 and 25, that's what they're talking about where it's like, 
I, no one sees anything. And I'm like, you're feeling it. So it's invisible. That's why no one can see it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, okay. This is what EMDR goes into. It goes into helping you realize that too. Then here's the positive thing about EMDR. It doesn't just say, let's go in the past and leave you there and say, yay. It says, now that you've realized and reprocessed all of this, let's recreate your identity. Mm. Let's recreate how you want to show up now. And that's the process. So you do past, you do present, and then you do future. And at each one of these, you you help the client recreate the identity. So once we finish all the past memories, we talk about, okay, who are you now? Let's talk about that. And then even in the EMDR bilateral stimulation, so the bilateral stimulation can be fingers kind of across the screen. Um, virtually, I've started to use dots with remote EMDR. Other people use light and just other different things to get you to focus your eyes on something while your brain is processing. And what you notice here is that we do the same thing for the new identity. So now that we've reprocessed and desensitized the old stuff, let's now commit to that part of your brain, your new identity, your new self. Then we go into present stuff mm. and we do the same thing. And then we go future because sometimes also we have future anxiety. What if, and that can also become a huge deterrent because what if I won't move if I'm still in that, what if, right? And so then we, go to the future and then we recreate it. And if you go through that whole kind of process, and again, it can take a while, not so much, depending on how quickly you're reprocessing processing things. By the time you get out of it, you've got a whole new identity. It doesn't mean you don't have conflict or stress or problems. It's just, you don't allow it to become so internalized that you take it all on. You just say, here's a problem. Everyone, let's come to the table and talk about it. As opposed to just be like, okay, I have to hold on to all of this myself and lose it. You don't do that anymore. And so the, the conceptualization here is that EMDR is working on helping you recreate your present identity without the intensity of that past stuff being a part of that decision. Mm. So Lisa wrote something. Uh, her teenager's in the other room, so she can't ask the question. That makes sense. I want to make sure that I'm reading it correctly, though, because it didn't make sense to me, but I'm trying to do too many things at once, which is kind of my MO. She says, ironically, her writing is frozen, and she can't express emotions at all. I wonder if she meant her wiring. I don't know what she means by writing. Disconnected from emotions, coming to head and deciding about college, and she can't access her feelings, so wanting to help her. Would love a writing class this summer if anyone has recommendations if she won't do EMDR. And does that make sense to you? Well, I think what yes. she's saying, well, she said above it um, that she said, I took a creative writing class, or Ginny wrote this, I took a creative writing class in my early 20s. Oh, she's responding to what Ginny wrote. Exactly. Okay, I got it. Because writing can be another, um, you know, and again, very different than EMDR, not the same process, but I think, you know, like, you know, I remember reading uh, Neil Do Neil Donald Walsh's book, uh, Conversations with God, and that whole process is about like write to yourself and see what comes out. It's a similar subconscious experience. Again, EMDR has a there's a whole brain. You know, like like Mercedes said, you're trying to get both sides of your brain online, and there's a whole different thing going on. But it's another way of accessing. So I think she's just saying. So um, it's so funny, Mercedes, because sometimes Kathy and I do this, and nobody has any questions. So Kathy and I talk, but the floodgates are opening yeah. for you. So. <laughs> I see it. Yeah. You're on to something. So I, I want to be respectful to Ginny. So I want to read her question and then maybe I can get to Millie. I took a creative writing class in my early 20s when I was also confronting sexual trauma in my childhood. All of my writing that semester dealt with my experiences with one piece feeling particularly healing where I took my younger self's hand and walked through difficult memories together, letting myself know that it wasn't my fault and that I'm safe now. The results felt magical to me. Is this similar to the EMDR process? Thousand percent, yes. Hmm. I say that because I actually had a similar experience in my EMDR, one of my early um, sessions where, so I, I will be honest about this because the opening to my book actually talks about this particular uh, thing that happened to me. So when I was a child, my mom threw a glass at my face and it broke in my face. And it was like one of my earliest memories of like, whoa, I was 11. And so I could never go back as an adult. Once I stopped talking to my mom, I stopped talking to her when I was 25. This is also in the book. Um, and I stopped talking to her. I'm 35 now. So for the past 10 years, I've been really trying to heal from all of that stuff. And when I started 
EMDR, I thought, oh, I've dealt with this. I have talked about that experience so many times. I thought it was fine. <laughs> when I did my first session, we were not talking about that. We were working on a memory where at my 10th birthday party, my mom didn't let me pick the slice of cake I wanted. Let your kids pick the slice of cake they want, okay? They didn't want to go to therapy is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but all jokes aside, that was what we were working on. And the memory came up where I, in one of the, the sessions where she was kind of doing this, the adult me walked down the stairs to my house, went to the me who was crying on the floor, who had gotten the glass, picked me up and said, mm. you're okay. Oh. This isn't your fault. That happened in a session. So what you're talking about is exactly what EMDR is working on. And I'll take it even further to say, this is actually why writing is so great because writing actually, it's not the same part of the brain, but it does the same thing where it allows you just to pour with no filter. I actually start all of my clients, initially all of them on writing, just start writing right? We can bring it in up into session, but just start writing because stuff comes out of you because you're not filtering it. When we're talking to people and when we're dealing with things, we're filtering it based on the situation and what they need. Even in therapy, sometimes you'll filter because you don't want your therapist to think you're crazy and 5150 you. So you, you, you know, you censor yourself. And so writing oftentimes can be a very therapeutic, cathartic experience. And I actually am a huge proponent of, even though I'm in mental health and I do this, I know that mental health, EMDR, and therapy aren't the only ways to heal. And so I'm a huge proponent on, if you can learn how to take what you've gone through and give it life and give it a voice, whether it be through characters or through your body. I love entertainment. I love entertainers who can act because they're allowing this character to speak for them. I love dancers because they're allowing the choreography to be their voice. And so I'm a huge proponent of understanding that therapy and EMDR is one of the many ways you can allow that voice to come out and show up. For me, being a logical person, I needed EMDR because I would not, I would, I just would not go into my emotions because I felt it too much. Mm -hmm. if I, I was just like, it's too visceral. So I'll just be smart. Right? And so that got me pretty far. Mm -hmm. But after a while, especially once I got away from my family, I realized I got to deal with these emotions. I really got to deal with them because it was starting to come up in my marriage. It was starting to come up in some other things. I was like, ah, this isn't me but it is me. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of me that I won't ex acknowledge or talk to because it's so intense and so just uh, that I kind of just kept it over there knowing this is me, Mercedes, but you got to deal with it. And so EMDR gave me a really safe container to begin to deal with it in a way that my brain could access and understand and allow for. Mm -hmm. So again, Todd, I think this might, you might like it because it is logical, even though the process is not the theory of it makes a lot of sense. You know yeah, what I mean? Totally. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, Go ahead, sweetie. Um, I love that Mercedes. I, I, we're so similar. Like I love listening to you because, and I'm sure my husband is appreciating this because same thing. I love the entertainment industry for that reason. I'm not an actress. I can't sing. Um, I dance best I can, but definitely not professionally. Um, and that's another release, but I was going to share similar to your story that there was a time in my life, like, uh, 11, 12, 13, where I could not sleep very well at all. Like I remember being up all night or having my light on and I had to stay in my room. That was kind of part of the deal. And it was really horrible. It was hard for me. And one part of my EMDR was being able to join myself and sleep next to myself and put myself to sleep. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to have my adult self with that part that got, that really like it shaped my brain in many ways, like figuring out I have to do this by myself and I'm failing and, and to have my self come in and say, no, no, I'll sleep next to you. You're this, is, and, and to see how young you were. I mean, sometimes there's some experiences we have where like, wow, I should have known better. And then when you can see it in your mind's eye, you're like, God, I was a kid. I was like, exactly. So, I was so little. Of course, I didn't know how to do that. Yeah, we forget that our, we forget what our brain was when we were 10 years old. We kind of are biased towards we should know better. It's hard for us to rewind and know where we were when we were 10 and what we were yeah. experiencing. And how it was being experienced. So I want to get to as many questions as possible. Um, Millie, this is your truncated version. Now, Millie was not, she was teaching her kids for the first half of this conversation. So it may be redundant or a little off base, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, her question is whether Mercedes has seen trauma play out in an adopted teen who has so far not shown any signs of trauma 
from what had to have been a difficult beginning to her life. She adopted, I want to move up real quick, just so uh, she adopted her daughter at 11 months from China, and she's now 14. And we've been always... We've always been open about her being adopted and celebrate her gotcha day every year while we do talk about her adoption. And sometimes I say out loud, I wonder if your birth mom or dad, I wonder if your birth mom or dad was in relation to something that we noticed in her, like her being super flexible for gymnastics. I feel we could talk more about it. From what we know, she was abandoned as a newborn and spent her early months at an orphanage. We learned recently that she may have had a traumatic early few months before she was brought to a loving private orphanage. I haven't asked her recently if she has any questions about her adoption or birth family. My question is whether Mercedes has seen trauma play out in an adopted teen who has so far not shown any signs of trauma from, and then it got cut off. So I think that's enough for you to kind of riff off of Mercedes. Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, First and foremost, I'll say uh, Heather Forbes is a great resource for what you're talking about um, in terms of adoption and how that how that emotional kind of development happens and the trauma around it. Uh, Heather T. Forbes, I can't think of what the name of her. I know she did like Beyond Consequences, but that's not really what you need. But she talks a lot about um, what happens to adoptees. And I'll think of another resource too um, when I get a break to, to think about it. But what ends up happening with EMDR is it actually also accesses that pre-verbal, non-verbal stuff as well because with adoptees, and especially as, as you just shared, um, adoptees, we start we start developing attachments the minute we come into the world. We start looking at who's going to take care of us and who is not. If it's consistent that no one is going to take care of us, then we kind of do what Kathy and I have talked about. You just start creating narratives. I'm not worthy. I don't need it. What sucks about pre-verbal is you have no words or concept for it, but you're still developing this body reactivity to not need to not need, right? So for a baby to not cry, for a baby to not reach out, that's actually abnormal, right? So if you think about this child, and I have no idea what their early beginnings were or when you adopted them, but even if it was just like the first year of their life where they had to develop this cognitive space to not need without any concept of what need is or any words around it, that stays and it continues on because now it's in your body. Um, Another good resource is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, And that's something that I think EMDR really hones in on is that the majority of our traumas are from things that we can't access, we don't have words for, we don't have concepts for. And with babies and that pre-verbal space, it's all just in their body and there's no word for it. We don't have a lot of words for what that is. And you didn't have any words when you were a kid. And so I think one of the things that with your, with their particular situation, I think what would happen with EMDR is we probably wouldn't even think about the earliest memory. We would just think about what's happening now to make you feel that way, work on that. And then hoping that if we work on that, it might open up some of the other stuff, yeah. right. And then working until we can get to it again, Going back to what we said before, trauma is all about perception, right? So it's not about something big. It's about something happened. Mm -hmm. Mm. And we made something something big. So something happened and we gave it story, we gave it feelings, and that could be big. So I think that's a definition of a trigger. There's a stimulus, but the the results of the stimulus are much bigger than the stimulus itself. Mm -hmm. And we got to focus not on the stimulus, but the impact of whatever meaning we gave it. Correct. And what sucks for children, especially, is that a lot of their meaning is shaped by the people around them until they're old enough to come up with their own stuff. And so when we think about teenagers, they've been shaped by, again, I was raised in an African-American Christian home. So much of my views were shaped in that. Um, If you don't mind me being honest, and this is about a trigger warning, I'm going to talk about uh, suicide. So just giving you a heads up. Um, When I was younger, the only reason why I did not attempted is because it was a sin. And I knew that if I did, I would go to hell. It's the only reason why. So there are times when I'm like, thank God for my religion, because I was like, I don't want to disappoint God. Right. But there are also times when I thought 
I wish someone would have told me that it's not about God. It's mm. about how you feel. And it's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel that way because no one did it. Everyone said, just pray when I would have stuff or they would just ignore it. And I would think, well, I don't want to go to hell. So I cannot kill myself. So I got to do something else. Right. And so it's, it's those mindsets. Again, think about what I just did. I took religion which is the most perceptual experience ever. Everyone throws their stuff on religion. And I took it and I thought, well, let's create a story around that mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. Here we are, yeah. right? And so it's that it's that space that I think sometimes we don't realize it, especially when we're raising kids. And this is why I love doing EMDR with parents because you came into your parenting with those stories mm-hmm. about what it meant to be a good kid, what it meant to be a good parent, what it meant to have a good family. And now, regardless of if your family can do it or not, you're holding everybody to those standards, even yourself. Yeah. And that is making things harder for everybody because you're like, I'm supposed to be the mom who understands, but you're not understanding and your kid is telling you you're not understanding. So then you feel horrible. Or I'm supposed to have a kid that follows instructions, but your kid is not following instructions. So it's like, what have I done wrong? And it's all those things that you picked up over time, right? Who taught you how to be a parent? I love asking that question. Who taught you what it meant to be a good parent, right? How do you know that this is definitively the way? And all of that is our narratives over time. I've had people say anything from, I don't want to be anything like my mom to, I hope I can be half as good as the mom she is. And both of those are so debilitating because you'll never be them. No matter how hard you try, you won't ever be as bad as she was. You'll never be as good as she was. You'll never be as bad as he was. You'll never be as good as he was. It's just how we create those stories. And then the kid comes and we're like, okay, now I got to put the kid in this story. And it's like, no, no, (laughs) don't, don't bring them into it. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's recreate new ones for our family. And again, when we do EMDR, for some parents, it's hard to even access that. I don't even know where I picked up the first story of what it meant to be a good mom. I just knew I didn't want to be like my mom. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like those things. And so in EMDR, we began to talk about that and we began to access it in a way that you don't have to tell me anything. We're just doing this. Right. When Todd was talking earlier and he was like, I don't know what I would do. What I would do if we were doing an EMDR session, I would say, go with that. Mm -hmm. And I would just go. And then you'd say, this is stupid. And I'd say, go with that. Right. You just go. And then you'd be like, well, now I feel okay. Go with that. Mm -hmm. Right. And it would just go because you are doing the work. I'm not telling you anything. If you think it's stupid, go with that. If you think it's genius, go with that and everything in between, because this is you reprocessing. This is you doing the work. This is you just letting it happen without even realizing it. And by the end of the session, you're like, I don't care anymore. And I'm like, awesome. Now let's close the session. <laughs> there so, we are. So you just answered the question that I was going to ask, which is, you know, I've, I've thought about, you know, I've been told by a few people to read The Body Keeps the Score, which I haven't done. Mm-hmm. Kathy is not somebody who ever tells me what to do in regards to my own personal growth, but she's invited me to consider it. Um, and I just have chosen not to. I, I, I have done other things. And I was going to ask, you know, what advice would you give to me? And it sounds like the advice is basically you can't F this up. Like, just go into it. Maybe part of me is like, don't, don't hold on tight. Like I'm clenching my fist. Like if I could just loosen my fist up a little Mm -hmm. bit walking into the session, I'm guessing it would be a deeper experience, but maybe it sounds like what you just said is go in with a clenched fist and see what happens there too. Yeah. And I think here's the, here's the reason why, because we just talked about narratives, right? Everyone has narratives. You've been told your whole life, you're too logical. You need to loosen up. So you're going in with, I need to loosen up. It's like, just go in. Yeah. Don't go in with all those nervous people have been telling you your whole life. Just go in yeah. because you're going to end up doing the work. And here's what I love. And my therapist said this, she said, if at the end you still do it, at least you have permission to allow yourself to do it as opposed to like, I should not be this way. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, I am. And this is where I am now. And if I'd like to do work to get out of that, I'll do that. It's a different space of not like I should stop doing it. It's more like, okay, I see that I'm doing it. I understand why I can nurture myself. I can be good to myself while I'm working through if I want to keep this piece of my identity or not. And that's why I love EMDR. It doesn't say get rid of it. It says, let's level the playing field so you can at least see what you want to get rid of and what you want to keep. If you're underneath all of it, you can't even see all of it's just a mess. You can't even see what you want to keep or what you don't want to keep. So EMDR keeps just pushing it down so you can be like, oh, oh, 
all right, I can see now. Now I can see what I want to deal with and what I don't want to deal with. And I think that's the piece of it that I love. It doesn't tell you what to do. It just lets you decide where you want to go with it. So this is so interesting to me. I was just having an argument with my good friend. And so it seems like EMDR is just another tool in the toolbox of personal growth or self-realization, whatever it is, um, along the lines of psychotherapy and Reiki and all these other things that, that we do meditation, you know, you throw, so I was having an argument with my friend because I think that there's value, whether it's through EMDR or psychoanalysis of going back into your childhood and revisiting certain things that happen. And he's, He's like, no, it's not worth it. Just be happy and be joyful. And that doesn't have nearly as much value looking backwards. And can you help me win this argument between my friend and I? You guys are going to have to call a draw on it because he's actually a bit right, unfortunately. Uh, (laughs) You're going to have to call a draw. And the reason why I say that is, again, that's just the narrative. Looks into the narrative. His narrative is, I don't have to go back to be happy. And he might be right, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's really, here's what I'll say to this. And if you want to kind of go back to him, what I'd say is this. All I want you to think about is what did you pick up from your childhood that you're okay with? And what did you pick up from your childhood that you're not okay with? And then decide on what you want to do. Mm. You don't have to go all the way back. You don't have to go through the unconscious stuff. You can just decide Mm. today. That's coaching, by the way. So when I'm working with my parents on coaching, that's what we're doing. I just say, what do you want to get rid of? You tell me. And they'll say, I don't want to yell anymore. And I say, is that realistic to never yell? No. So what do you want? Well, I'd like to yell less. Okay. What if I told you you're probably going to yell again? Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with learning how to not beat yourself up when you yell? Okay, so now we're moving forward, right? I'm not going back in the past to figure out who made you decide that yelling was right. I'm just helping you kind of move forward. Here's what's fun. When that person gets safe here and who they are, then they might kind of turn back and say, well, what about when I was 15? Can I feel safe with that too? Sure. What about when I was 20? Can I feel safe with that too? Sure. And so it's a little bit of both. Mm. Some people don't ever want to go back because that's scary and there's no safety there. So I just want to move forward because there's safety there. What I learned is that some people who need that, I don't mind helping you move forward because once you start to feel safe here, you're like, okay, this is fine. There's this one thing that happened though. And I'm like, okay. And that's how I know I've actually built a healthy therapeutic relationship with someone who's like your friend. Who's like, I just want to know how not to yell at my kids. I just want to know how to make them listen. Cool. I can move forward with them because once I get that stabilized, then they're like, my mom used to yell at me. It's weird. I don't like to talk about it, but, and then I'm like, okay, now I get it. Let's talk about it. So it's a bit of both, right? It just depends on where, how you feel safe, right? If you feel safe here, you don't mind diving back in the past. And if you don't even feel safe here in the present, I'm not going back in the past, man. That was unsafe too. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It totally. And I, I'm, I'm making up a story cause I'm not inside my friend's brain, but cause I feel like he would mm-hmm. say, um, no, I, I feel safe here and I choose not to go back cause there's nothing of value back there. And okay. I guess that's okay. I just, my ego, my ego wants to be right and his ego wants to be right. Well, and there's something like, you know, and everything, we all evolve at different times and for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Like I love what Mercedes said because I had to do a lot of grounding work to feel good in this time and place before I could even look at those things. Like when we talk, you know, I, in therapy a long time ago, years ago, when we'd talk about my history, I would be like this. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. And once I could like do the self-awareness and personal growth and positive psychology, I was like, okay, now I've got a, a safe space. And then, and again, when I'm saying this, I'm not saying, you know, Sean, who you're talking about or, you know, that he- Sweetie, even, how do you know I'm talking about Sean? Because you were just with Sean. Um, <laughs> He's a team member, by the way. A lot of people know who Sean but is. But he, he may not need to, like if there is something, if he's okay, and he may need to in 10 years or next month, yes. or yes. we're all evolving at different times. And it's not like he's doing it right, you're doing it wrong, or he's healthy and you're not healthy. Like someone who is like cruising along may hit a wall tomorrow. And somebody who is in the deep throes of depression or addiction could have a new pathway tomorrow. Like we're all, there's no like right way to be. Um, and so, you know, I, I would cut yourself some slack Todd and also him because he, that's his, that's where he is today. Yeah. I hear that. So I want to be respectful of Mercedes time and everybody else's time. So we are out of integrity because I said 60 minutes and it's been 62 minutes. So sorry about that. That's me 
holding on tight, Mercedes. I need <laughs> to. Right. So I apologize to you and everybody else. Sweetie, any last minute? Just Mercedes, you're so great. I mean, I knew, I already knew because I read all your stuff, but I just really appreciate you as a human. Like everything you said, I'm just like lighting up because it was helpful to me. It gave me new language, but it also just, um, it just feels really comfortable to me and, and that, that the experiences I've had are very similar to what you said. So it feels wonderful. And to everybody on the team, um, you know, I've been singing the praises of EMDR and now you have Mercedes, you do this uh, virtually, right? So someone could come to you. So will you share all your information right now so people can find you? So they know where sure. to go. So um, I'm pretty much all over the internet as Mercedes Samudio. So if you type that in, you'll find me. But uh, the website that Todd shared at the beginning, shameproofparenting.com is a great spot to start and then move forward. With parent coaching, I can do that across the world. With EMDR, you have to be in the spaces where I'm licensed. And so right now I'm licensed in California, temporarily in New York, temporarily in New Jersey due to COVID. And I'm actually looking at getting licensed elsewhere. But if you're not in California, I cannot be EMDR with you, but I can do parent coaching. And I will say this, I've infused some of those coping skills into some of my parent coaching because I know it helps. Great. Great. I'm just so glad you're out there doing that. Thank you. Yeah. And I will um, say we've been doing 116 of these and today's last hour is amongst my favorite one we've ever done. Me too. And I... You know, I thought it was going to be yet another Zen talk that I was excited for. But Mercedes, your wisdom and your compassion and the energy that comes from you is certainly in alignment with what I believe. And I just want to just express sincere gratitude for you joining us. And I'm just so, so pleased that I get to spend an hour with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I enjoyed it. And I hope that you got the questions you needed answered. And I'll also just say, if you have more questions, please feel free to email me or reach out. And if I can't help you, I can definitely put you in contact with someone who can support you and get you the answers that you need. Mm. All right. That's so great. We'll stay connected, Mercedes. Shameproofparenting.com. Thank you, Mercedes. Blessings, gratitude. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review. It helps people find us. The best part of what we do is getting to spend time with our listeners in an awesome community of parents who have come together over at Team Zen. Team Zen is a great opportunity to connect as much as you want with a group of like-minded parents, and you'll even get exclusive content from Kathy and me. Find out more about Team Zen on our site, zenparentingradio.com. We know your inbox needs more hopeful and helpful info, so sign up for the Zen Parenting Moment. Two times a week, you'll receive a quick read that will boost your day and improve your outlook. Sign up at zenparentingradio.com. While men and women, moms and dads, parents and non-parents are all welcome here at ZPR, we know most of our followers are female and moms. So today we're shouting out an opportunity that's just for the guys. Men Living creates opportunities for men to gather together to give and get support and build friendship. I am one of the founders of the group, and you'll find me every week helping facilitate our virtual meeting on Wednesday nights at 7.30. Interested or want to share the details with someone you love? You can find the Zoom link at menliving.org. Ready for a Gen X view of personal growth? Join us for Pop Culturing, our podcast filled with humor, fun, and a characteristic emphasis on self-awareness as we explore movies, TV, and pop culture. And don't forget, I coach guys. So if you're interested, head on over to toddadamscoaching.com and schedule a one-on-one session. First session is free. Finally, I want to give a special thanks to our founding partner, Jeremy Kraft. He's a bald-headed beauty, and the company he has is Avid. They do painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. Go to avidco.net or give them a call at 630-956-1800. Thanks for all your love and support, and keep on trucking.